If there were a top ten list when it comes to most important passages in the Bible, our passage this morning would certainly be on the list. Um, one famous preacher said, there is no more important text of Scripture than our text of Scripture. Um, I don't want to fight about that, so I'll just put it on the top ten list. Um, our text is Matthew chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can find the third chapter of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. And we're going to really focus on the end of the chapter today, but to understand the end, which would be the baptism of Jesus, we should probably probably read the whole chapter because um, we, we learn about John the baptizer. So let's go ahead and read the whole text, the whole chapter, and then we'll focus in on the end of it in more detail. So it says in verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham." Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with, the water, with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And now our text. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The last time I heard a sermon on this, I sat in the front row and cried. I don't think I've ever cried while preaching a sermon, and I don't plan to start today. But I love this text. I love this text because it helps us to understand Jesus better, and it helps us to understand Jesus better in particular regarding what he does to bring salvation to sinners like you and me. If you're at all puzzled by the passage and why I would be saying that, don't feel bad. Okay? If you're at all puzzled by the baptism of Jesus, you're in good company. Right? You're in good company because the guy who baptizes him is puzzled. 
He, he doesn't have it figured out. He, he's wondering. This doesn't seem to make sense to me. Is what John's thinking. He, he doesn't even want to do it. Uh, countless Christians throughout the ages have been puzzled by this. I've been puzzled by it before. I've been studying the Bible for, I don't know, 30 years. And I've made it a habit to try to figure it out so I can explain it to other people. But it's understandable. And when you understand the significance and where it fits in the Bible storyline, it's amazing. It's amazing to consider what Jesus is doing, the significance of it, and even how it's significant for us. So I can't wait to have us look and take a bit of a deeper dive and put the pieces together so it isn't so puzzling and we're able to give Jesus honor and glory like we should be able to do. So taking a closer look, if we look at verse 13, then, and, in, and I had to write in my margin, at this strategic time with the launch of the ministry of John the Baptist, the one fulfilling the orchestrated purposes of God as prophesied by Isaiah, there's one word, and I already have to give you a commentary, right? But, but, but then, at this special time, right? The special time when John the Baptist is doing his baptism ministry. And according to Isaiah, this is anticipated, expected. He's the one. This is meant to be. So at that strategic time, Jesus came to Galilee, from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So Galilee is to the north, right? Sea of Galilee to the north. And then here in the, the Judean wilderness is to the south. Um, so think Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea to the south, connected by the Jordan River. Okay, so they're out in the wilderness. They're out in, in the desert, if you will, um, depending on rainfall, depending on all sorts of things back then. But uh, you can... Lots of places, Jordan River, right? You could throw a rock across into Jordan from Israel. So it's not a big place. It's not where you vacation. It's not plush. Um, he's out in the wilderness. But people are responding because they see their need, uh, because God has not spoken through a prophet for some 400 years, uh, because God is working in their hearts. For whatever reason, they're going to John, and they're going to John, and they're going to John. And now Jesus comes all the way from Galilee to be baptized by John. Something extraordinary, something special, something significant, not just, oh, that's interesting. Now, my question for you at this point in time, because we're going to put puzzle pieces together, what kind of baptism is this? First become a Christian, you don't know anything, you just read the Bible, or you're not even a Christian, and you think there's only one kind of baptism, and then you figure out there's not one kind of baptism. This isn't Christian baptism, that wouldn't even make sense. Jesus hasn't died yet. He hasn't been raised yet. It's not picturing that because that hasn't even happened yet. So it's not Christian baptism. Um, it's not ba being baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, a la 1 Corinthians, because that, that, that's not a reality yet. Um, what kind of baptism? What kind of bapt it's not the baptism of fire. That's something Jesus is going to do, and it doesn't sound very good. Um, what kind of baptism is this? Well, hopefully you are thinking it's a baptism of repentance because that's what John has been talking about. So if we go earlier in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's preaching repentance. Then in verse 5, excuse me, in verse 6, it says they were, uh, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. So it's a baptism where you confess your sins. It's a baptism of repentance. That fits. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. 
baptism of repentance. Now remember, baptism wasn't invented with John. It wasn't invented with Christians. Baptism is ceremonial. It's cleansing, um, extra, uh, symbolizing something. So if it's a baptism, this cleansing ritual symbolic act, if it's a baptism symbolizing repentance... Well, to repent is to change your mind. To, 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 they're, they're admitting they've been wrong about God, what he requires. They're admitting they've been wrong about themselves. They, they, they're admitting that they've been wrong about whether or not they're fit for the kingdom of heaven to welcome the king. They're not ready. So they're, they're repenting. I need to get ready. So here's the prophet baptizing and it's symbolizing repentance. I, I, need, to, I need to have a pure heart. I need cleansing on the inside and I'm going to symbolize it by, by being cleansed on the outside. It's probably the idea. I know it's the idea. It's a baptism of repentance. I think it's also important as we put the pieces of the puzzle together that John didn't say, okay, all of the people who are hardened criminals because we know you need to repent, come out to the Jordan River. No, we've learned that all of the people are going. The ordinary people, the regular people are going. In fact, just to, so you don't take my word for it, but we did read it earlier. It says in verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, confessing their sins. So th- th- these, are, these are the us people, if you will. This is, this is everybody going, okay? So it's a common thing to acknowledge, I'm not perfect, I'm not ready, I, I'm not righteous, I, I, I have a problem, I, I'm not ready for the king to come, I'm not ready to meet God, I'm not ready to go to heaven, I'm not ready for the kingdom of heaven, and I need to be ready. You with me so far? All of this is going to be important because Jesus is going to get baptized, and he's going to be baptized, he's going to undergo a baptism of repentance, and if that's not puzzling to you, You didn't get enough sleep last night. A a further clue comes even in verse 2 where where we hear from John, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So sinners aren't fit for heaven. Sinners aren't fit for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're not fit, so repent. Repent. Acknowledge that you're not fit. Fascinating, I think. So God, through John, is calling for repentance. This begs the bazillion dollar question, right? Why in the world does Jesus want to be baptized? Right? Jesus Jesus has never repented before. Okay? Jesus is not in the repenting business. Jesus... Has, has been right about everything his whole life. Okay? He's called the righteous, right? He's the spotless Lamb of God. He's the one, according to chapter 1, verse 21, who came to save his people from their sins. He, he, he's, he's not part of the problem. He's the solution. So we, we should be puzzled in our minds. What? It's a baptism for, for people who are wrong and not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Bapti- baptism for repentance. And, and now Jesus says, you, you should baptize me. And rightly so. I mean, John, John may have been a com- country bumpkin who ate locusts, right? And dressed strange. But he wasn't born yesterday. Something's not right. This, this isn't how it should be. This doesn't work. And, and I'm wanting you to feel that sense. Because if you don't feel that sense, you, you really don't end up understanding why Jesus does what he does and you don't understand why he says what he says. 
and you, you don't grasp what a great Savior He is for you if you're trusting in Him. It's crying out for an answer. I don't want to give the answer yet, but it's crying out for an answer. Why? 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 Am I right? Verse 14 says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Then the great answer, and the an- you know what's better than the answer is the greatness of the Savior. Verse 15 says, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting, it is appropriate, it is right It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. To fulfill all righteousness. Okay? Four important words. I mean, some of those texts in the Bible that that give us important words, uh, I, I really like to remember, like, it is finished. Three super important words. It is finished. Uh, or like, how about in Ephesians chapter two? But God! who is rich in mercy. Maybe my two favorite words there. Oh, I have lots of favorites. To fulfill all righteousness. Now, whatever that means, it's good. Okay? Can you at least agree to that? I hope so. I think lots of Christians think that, that that's good. That's important. And lots of Christians don't know what it means. If we can understand what it means, then we can understand something of Christ's greatness that we didn't understand before, and we would appropriately express our gratitude to him. Jesus is going to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Okay. This is big. One of the most important concepts in the Bible because it's all over the place and your pastor talks about it all of the time because I know all kinds of people who don't know what it means and I'm a Bible teacher. I love to teach the Bible. I love it when people get it and connect dots and have the aha moment and they can read the Bible and understand it better themselves is the concept of righteousness. It's super basic. It's super simple, but it's super important because it's all over the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, okay? So putting the puzzle together, we better be, better be able to say what it is. Righteousness, to be righteous means to be someone who upholds law, okay? A righteous person is an upholder of law. When we're talking about God, it's someone who upholds God's law. One who obeys the standard, if you will. Okay? who meets the requirement, who does what God requires. Uh, you can just think of the word right, if you will, but it's legal. Okay? So that's why it's used interchangeably sometimes with just. Okay? Justice. God is just. God is righteous. That's just interchangeable because he's a God, God who has a law. And he doesn't compromise. He, he, he upholds his law as far as the standard. Well, Jesus says, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. Let's do this because I am going to obey the law. I'm going to obey what God requires is what he's saying. Okay. Now, I don't even know what to say next. This is good. You might be wondering, why do I need that? Why is that so important? We'll get to that. 
But Jesus, extraordinarily, even with objectors, says, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying, we're going to do this because this is what God requires. This is what God, think with me about this, this is what God, through the prophet John, what do prophets do? Prophets speak for God. They proclaim God's message. So God's prophet John comes to all of the people, right? He emphasized the, the universalness of the people, all the Judea, people in the, the region in Jerusalem, and, and they're all coming, and they're being baptized, a baptism for repentance. It was necessary for them if they're going to see the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus, who's never sinned and doesn't, doesn't need to repent, he's going to do perfectly what the, all those people were called to do, but actually couldn't even do perfectly. He's the perfect one. He's coming, and if anyone is fit, if anyone is right, it's him. I'm going to act, let's do it this way. I'm going to act as a representative for all of these people. Okay? I'm going to act as a substitute. I'm the Savior. I'm doing the right thing for them. God calls for people to, to act. Maybe they're doing it, but they can't do it perfectly because none of them is righteous. I can do it perfectly. I'm the perfect representative. I'm going to do what God requires perfectly, fulfilling all of God's requirements. And at this point in time in history, God is requiring the people to go be baptized by John. He's the perfect baptismal candidate. He's the perfect obeyer. And he's obeying representatively. Okay? In place of those who would trust in him to fulfill all that God requires. He'll talk more about this in chapter 5. I didn't come to abolish the law, the prophets. I came to fulfill the law. I came to do all the right things. I came to love God perfectly, representatively, and to love neighbor perfectly, representatively, because that's what God requires. I hope you're seeing where this goes. We're going to start looking at other texts and putting pieces together, but I hope you see where this goes. Jesus is the perfect adhere to God's requirements because God doesn't require zero. God requires that you love him and love your neighbor perfectly and you don't and I don't. Jesus now at the launch of his ministry says what I do, the story of my life, if you will, the story of my life is to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to do everything right on behalf of everyone who would ever trust in me. It's amazing. It's amazing, amazing, amazing. And then we know how the story ends. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer his whole life too. He's going to obey his whole life. He's going to suffer his whole life. And that suffering will culminate when he goes to the cross to make atonement for our sins so we can be forgiven. But both are in play. Removal of guilt through atonement, and now you're at zero. And God doesn't require zero. God requires that you love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus takes care of both. It's the double benefit from Christ. Okay? This is why 1 Peter 3.18 refers to Jesus as the righteous for the unrighteous. 
See, substitute. The adherer to God's requirements for the breaker of God's requirements. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, we, we need his righteousness to be brought to God. Acts 3 verse 14, the sermon there says, You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He's the righteous one, the adherer to God's requirements. Philippians 3 9. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Christ is the righteousness from God provided for us, to us. Not ours, because we're broken, but his. Even in the greeting in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, by the, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, That's how we have an equal standing with all believers. What makes us all equal is righteousness come to us. Adherence to law gained by another, not us. Or how about 1 John 2, verse 1? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. How does that end? Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, it's meant to encourage, right? As one preacher said, if I could lose my salvation, I would, right? First John is saying, you know, sin is bad. Don't sin. But if you do, but if you do, just remember, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who gave you a mulligan, gave you a do-over, just try a mulligan. No! Our advocate that we have is Jesus Christ, the righteous, The righteous. So when he comes and is baptized representative for the, for, for the people, he says, I'm going to do this because I've come here to earth to do all the right things, all the things God requires to fulfill all righteousness. It's, it is extraordinary, absolutely amazing to consider why Jesus is going to do everything he does. But here, this is the launch of his public ministry. This is why, by the way, we, we can have justification. Okay, So, so Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we, we all love that text because of what it promises as Christians. Uh, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's what we want. We want peace with God. How can we have peace with God? Because we're justified by faith. We have faith in Christ, and if we have faith in Christ, we're justified. To be justified means to be declared righteous. And we're declared righteous, not just because. We're declared righteous because our substitute Savior is what? Is righteous. Because of the work of another, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Love, love, love thinking about this. Some of you might be thinking, all you ever talk about is this. Well, then maybe I'm doing my job. But we are in Matthew 3. I came. We're going to do this. I'm going to obey what God requires at this point in time to fulfill all righteousness. I'm that kind of Savior. It's, it doesn't get any better. And again, practicality, 
The practicality is you have an advocate with the Father, not who brings you to zero. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. One of the most stalwart defenders of this doctrine in our day has been R.C. Sproul, who's in heaven now. And I want to stand with R.C. on this, because lots of people don't like this reality. The Pope of Rome doesn't like this reality, because if this is true, then salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Others don't like it because it makes Christ preeminent of all. And we might not be able to try to get people to do what they're supposed to do. Well, the Christian approach to getting people to do what they're supposed to do is to remind them of their position in Christ and urge them to act rightly out of gratitude. That's why Romans 6 is in chapter 6 (laughs) and not in 1 to 5. Obedience comes as a result. Christ is a great Savior. I like to tell people Jesus is even better than we thought he was. Some years ago when this was brewing as a a, a little behind-the-scenes controversy at Omaha Bible Church, someone asked me, "So, so what's this whole thing even about? And I'm writing my doctoral dissertation and writing papers and and largely given to these things. And I said, I can summarize it for you in just a few words. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Okay? He's better than we thought he was. He doesn't only remove our guilt, and I'm really happy about that because I have a lot of guilt. (laughs) He removes our guilt. He also is our substitute who's done everything right on our behalf so that we might have peace with God. So I want to stand with R.C. and fight against whether it's the Pope of Rome or the followers of John Nelson Darby, the founder of dispensationalism, who didn't like this, or N.T. Wright, or whoever it is. Jesus, the righteous on behalf of everyone who would ever believe. I've got to tell you a good story about this. I told some of you the story before, but I've got to illustrate God's kindness and goodness. Um, as R.C. was getting sick toward the end of his life, ready to go to heaven, um, he was scheduled to speak at the graduation. So I'm finished with working on all this kind of stuff. The behind-the-scenes fighting about all the ins and outs regarding this reality. Um, And so I I show up in Orlando with my wife. Wish you all could have been there. We would have had a moment. Um, And I was talking to Stephen Nichols, and he said, you know, R.C.'s having a good day today. I think he's going to make the graduation. So I thought that's great. And so we, have I told you this story before? Some of you. So there we are at St. Andrews, all the pomp and circumstance, and the, all the graduates are going to go in, you know, and the processional, and they've got the bagpipe player playing Amazing Grace. And, you know, it's, it's just awesome. Okay. It's a moment. So walking in, of course, you know, we follow the faculty, and then R.C., who's in a wheelchair, is up, already up on the stage, but he's there. He's got his oxygen tank on and, and all this. And, and I'm sitting, of course, 
Abendroth is bad sometimes for taking tests or things like that, uh, volunteers, um, but sometimes it's good. So I'm sitting right there just taking it all in. The work is done. I'm so happy. Then R.C. gets up to the pulpit with help. He had to have people get him up there, and he's up there. And probably one of the last sermons he ever preached. It wasn't the last one, but one of them. And he gets up there, and he preaches on Matthew 3. On the active obedience of Christ, there's no hope without it. And I just sat there and bawled. I was so happy. It was like God's good gift to me just to say, you're not alone in this. I was sitting there. Molly wasn't with me because she wasn't graduating, obviously. Anyway, so, but I'm thinking to myself, I hope she knows. I hope she knows. I hope she knows. And sure enough, after, after the ceremony was over, she came and gave me a hug and, and said to me, I'll never forget, she said, isn't the Lord good to you for giving you that gift? He is. R.C. sent me a handwritten note sometime later just saying congratulations and uh, good job on the dissertation kind of thing. Well, we're not here to honor people, but we are here to say, if it's true, it will be controversial. And there will be cost involved. But let's learn from people who are brave and let's learn from people who say Christ is better. You're not going to heaven, my friends, if you're a spiritual zero. You do need your guilt removed. You do need forgiveness and atonement. But you also need what God requires and God requires perfect adherence to his requirements. Just know, Jesus Christ is the righteous. That's where assurance of salvation comes from. Forgiven, reconciled unto God, justified because of someone else's perfection. It doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than that. Verse 16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, that's Matthew's way of saying, strikingly, behold, the heavens were opened to him. You see, he is the right one who's doing the right thing. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, guess what? The one who is already now publicly doing the right thing has heaven open to him. Don't miss it. Don't, don't miss it. If, if you want to have heaven open to you, okay? That, that's why you trust in Christ. Heaven is open to him. The kingdom of heaven is open to him. This whole thing started with, we want to be, be right with God so that we can experience the kingdom of heaven, so we can experience the new creation. Well, there's Jesus. He does the right thing as a public representative, and heaven is open to him. It's, ex, ex, it's extraordinary. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and, and coming to rest on him. Public anointing, official empowerment. Verse 17, And behold, and strikingly a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Again, if you want God to say, I'm, I, I, I'm pleased with you. You, you. you unite yourself to the one you know he is pleased with. 
you know he's pleased with his righteousness. In Christ, my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. It just doesn't get any better. So what should we learn from verses 16 and 17? Well, we should learn that Trinitarianism is true and modalism is false, but that's not really the point. Um, As an aside, this is a great proof text for people who say that God was the Father and then God decided to become the Son and then God decided to become the Holy Spirit. Um, It's called modalism. It's a heresy. Uh, Here you have all three at the same time. So again, it's an aside, but it's actually an important reality. I have a question for you, though. Another question. Why didn't this happen when all the other people were baptized? Now, I'm with you if you say, well, no one else was God's eternal son, right? I'm totally with you, right? He's the extraordinary one, pre-incarnation. So I'm with you. But, But let's just tease it out a little bit and think about it and ask the question, well, Is there anything else? Why didn't this happen with everybody? And as some of you have already mouthed to me, no one else is perfectly righteous. I think you should think about that. He's the one you want to be associated with. He's the one you want to trust in. Even here at the launch of his public ministry, we know that he's the one you want to be associated with because he's the one that opens heaven. And he is the one who the Father is pleased with. I want the Father to be pleased with me. I want to be part of the new creation. I want to be part of the kingdom of heaven. I got to be associated with the righteous. And if I am associated with the righteous, I, by way of preview now, I know that heaven is going to be pleased. It's assurance. Isn't it good? It could only be said of this one, the faithful son. And I saw some of you had the, the Bible journals um, today. In my Bible journal, the little black ones or the fancier colored ones, In my margin here, though, I also write, see chapter 2, verse 15. And you don't need a Bible journal to do that. You can just look it up. One great thing about writing in your Bible or journaling and writing things down is you can make connections. You can say, oh, we learned about a son earlier, and now he's talking about his son here, and there hasn't been a lot of son talk, so maybe there's a pattern. Maybe we're meant to see a connection here, and I would suggest that we are meant to see a connection here. So here, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased... What about sonship? Is there a pattern? Is there a history involved? Well, in chapter 2, verse 15, um, they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And we all know that's talking about Jesus. But if you remember, that's a quote from Hosea 11. And in Hosea 11, 1, the son is Israel, the nation. So God has in the past called Israel his son. And he delivered his son, okay? But now, because that was in anticipation of his ultimate son, the faithful son, we have, behold, my beloved son, not like Israel, in whom I'm well pleased. 
listen to him. We could connect further dots if we want to follow the sonship theme. Excuse me. In Luke's gospel account, guess who else is called God's son? Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Adam. This will be important next week when we get to the temptation passage. Adam is God's son. Unfaithful. Tempted and failed. Unrighteous. And now we have the ultimate son. The last Adam, Paul would say. The representative you need and want, the righteous. The faithful son. We want to be associated with him. Now what should we talk about? So just like I tried to encourage you in chapter 1, verse 21, to remember that when we read through the whole thing, he came to save his people from their sins. So he comes as the perfect example, yes. He comes as a truth teller, yes. But throughout the whole thing, we're meant to read the whole thing, all that he does, as the Savior. He came to save his people from their sins. Also, you should remember that all that he's going to do is righteous. And he is doing the right thing as a representative to fulfill all righteousness. And so I'm going to read and learn about Jesus and I'm going to love Christ because of that. Maybe like I never have before. It's not selfish to say Jesus is doing the right thing for me. It's acknowledging his love. It's acknowledging his greatness, causing me to have gratitude and thanksgiving, and I want to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. How can you know if God is pleased with you? And how can you know if you're fit for the kingdom of heaven? Only if you have perfect righteousness. And you can have perfect righteousness in Christ. By trusting in him. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Today when we eat and drink in remembrance of him. You might be able to remember what he's done for you. Like you've never been able to remember it before. And I hope we keep growing in our knowledge of him and that it shows up in our, our gratitude. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for, as we've been saying again and again and again, like John chapter, 1 John chapter 2 says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We are thankful for a faithful Savior who loved us and gave himself up for us. And we're thankful for the fact that you've shown us him so that we might know that we have acceptance from you in him. We confess before you that we are weak, not only physically some of us, but also spiritually, and that we could never save ourselves, and that we're not righteous. And so we're thankful for a great Savior, Jesus, who is. And Lord, we're thankful for such good news, and may we be men and women and boys and girls who are eager to tell others of good news because of a great Savior whose name is Christ the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.